So I've asked you to turn with, with me in your scriptures to Philippians chapter 2. Um, our class is studying Christology, studying the doctrine of Christ, and um, been sort of trying to balance the order of the curriculum, and we have some weeks that are, I guess what I refer to as a little lighter in, in content, and some that are a little more, more difficult, they demand a little more of our gray matter to be engaged in the study, and that uh, where we find ourselves today in Philippians chapter 2. It is a passage that's referred to as the kenosis passage. That, pat, that title comes from a key word in the, in the passage, which we'll note in a moment or two. Um, and, uh, and so that is what we're going to be doing. The reason that we're looking at this passage, uh, one of the reasons we're looking at this passage is that those that are of a liberal persuasion, they would possibly refer to themselves as Christians, but they are in that category of liberal persuasion where they deny such things as the authority and the accuracy of the scripture, they would deny the deity of Christ, they would deny the necessity of the blood atonement, etc., etc., and one of the things they do is they use this particular passage, Philippians chapter 2, to deny the deity of Christ. They say the passage, that's what the passage is teaching, that Christ emptied himself of his deity. And so that's one of the reasons that we are looking at it. Um, just, I don't know if you'll ever encounter anybody that says that to you, but if you do, I hope that then maybe by studying it and then by your being able to to be, remember it, you might be able at least, and again, it's not a matter of being able to refute what somebody else is, is, believes or refute what somebody else is teaching, but it's much more so that you are settled in what you believe, so that you're not shaken in what you believe, so that you have confidence in the Word of God and what it teaches. So it's much more interested, I'm much more interested in making sure that you're confident and comfortable in what you believe more so than being uh, confrontational. I'm not saying not to discuss it. I'm not saying to express your opinion. I'm just saying that's not what I'm trying to accomplish. So if we were look at, to look at some different translations, um, if you're looking with me in Philippians chapter 2, we're looking at um, verse 7. I'll read verse 5, Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now I'm reading from the New King James Bible, and it translates, the word it tra that translates here, made himself no, no reputation, you may have the word emptied himself, or made himself nothing, or some variation of that. Um, my personal opinion is that I think that in this particular situation that both the King James and the New King James, and I'm not King James only by any means, uh, but the King James and the New King James both capture the meaning of the word better than the word emptied. The word emptied is the literal meaning of the word, but in the context it takes on a different significance, which we'll continue to talk about here. So <clears throat> that is where we're at. Now, I'm not denying the fact that Christ emptied himself of something, but we need to discover from a biblical vantage point what that something is, okay? And it's not that he gave up his deity. 
that is just uh, simply heretical, and it's not the position that we're going to take. So the positions that are suggested, if you were to read about this passage in the theology book or someplace else, uh, again, number one um, is they gave up his deity. That is what the, those that deny other biblical facts, other biblical truths that we believe are very precious and very dear to us, uh, th that group of people would be very comfortable with this saying, yep, he gave up his deity. Okay? <clears throat> the other, <clears throat> one of the other positions that is held is that he gave up some of his attributes. Specifically, they would be basically saying that he gave up his omnipresence, his omniscience, and his omnipotence. That is what they would basically say. So they gave up some of his attributes. Um, a little bit of a variation, I guess, but that is, what, again, what some, some would believe. Again, I would believe that most of those that would hold that position would also be in what I would refer to as a liberal Christian camp. Um, and I use that word Christian very loosely when I use it in conjunction with the word liberal. But uh, they gave up some of his attributes. The third position is they gave up the independent use of his attributes. Now this is probably amongst evangelical, biblical-believing people, this is probably the most common belief that he gave up the independent use of his attributes, that Christ could not, while he was in, a, in his earthly ministry, that he could not independently use his attributes. Okay? So it's the most common view. Um, <clears throat> the view that I'm going to present to you is that <clears throat> he gave up his right to appear as God should appear. Uh, he gave up his right to be recognized immediately as God by becoming man, by taking upon himself human flesh. So we're going to talk about that more. That's, so that's where we're at. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on giving up his deity, except I'll just simply ask you the question, how can God stop being God? Okay? Uh, how can you stop being who you are? How can Steve stop being Steve? Or, or Brian stop being Brian? Or Mike stop being Mike? You know, how can you do that? How can you just stop being something? It just, it just doesn't make any sense at all. The other thing I wanted you to continue to focus on now as we continue to talk about this in, in our lesson today is I want you to really focus on what the passage is talking about. So I'll ask you the question, does the passage say anything about him giving up being God? Does it give you even, leave you even with that impression that he gave up being God? If you read on past verse 7. So, number one, the liberals say he gave up being God. He gave up the, his deity. I do not believe that, okay? I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I don't believe that you can give up who you are along the way. The second position that is presented is that he gave up some of his attributes. Now, I want us just to turn to a few verses concerning that. We can begin with John chapter 1. So, they, he gave up his ability um, to be omniscient, omnipresent, whatever words you want to use uh, in this regard. And in John chapter 1, a very interesting encounter between Christ and Nathaniel. Probably most of you are familiar with this encounter and can probably tell me about it without us reading the text, but we will read the text. And uh, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? 
Let me back up one verse. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit or no guile. Now, that's quite a compliment for anyone to make about anyone else, let alone this one that has been now in the context presented as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, whom John has declared to be God and to have become flesh and dwelt among us. And so Christ makes this comment about Nathanael, which is in itself an interesting comment, an interesting observation. And then Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, and the immediate context talks about Philip seeking out Nathanael, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so here we see Christ at the very least manifesting omniscience, knowing all things, because he knew that Nathanael was under the fig tree the previous day. He knew who Nathanael was and knew about Nathanael's character and what people would say about Nathanael. Okay? So at the very least, we have Christ demonstrating his omniscience in this passage. I personally believe there's also the potential of him demonstrating his omnipresence in this passage, and I've mentioned this before, and the difference between being resident, one of the members of the Godhead being resident someplace, like Christ was resident during his earthly ministry, now he's resident in heaven, but even though he's resident in heaven, he's still omnipresent, okay? And so I still, I think that even that could still be being manifested by by Christ in John chapter 1, but at least his omniscience is being manifested in John chapter 1. In John chapter 2, verse 24, says that, I'll again, again pick up with verse 23 of John 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now how does a passage like that reconcile with another human? It really doesn't. It only reconciles with the fact that Jesus is God himself and that Jesus didn't need anybody to talk about anybody else or give anybody a character witness or a reference. He knew these people. And so he knew the reason that they would have taken him and exalted him and put him up. It was for selfish reasons. It was for temporary reasons. And they weren't yet able to recognize that they were dealing with the Son of God. They were only recognizing that they were dealing with a a great prophet, somebody that had given, been given the ability to perform miraculous signs, this passage being right after he changed the water to wine. So uh, turn to another passage we have here in John chapter 8. And I just chose these passages out of John just to um, sort of keep us in one place. Um, again, there's this one of these many encounters that Jesus has with the religious leaders. Um, they're always coming up, you know, to him and challenging him and accusing him of different things, and he's always responding to them righteously. Uh, and in this particular case, the, this discussion is over as far as the Jews are concerned. Um, they're ready to stone Christ, and they're ready to find him guilty of blasphemies. 
Now, blasphemy is technically the idea, ability of speaking evil of someone or evil of something. And again, uh, the many things that they might bring against Christ in a way of form of accusation, they could not accuse him of blaspheming God. He certainly never spoke evil of his father. And so this was in itself, again, along that line of building up trumped-up charges to bring against Christ. But in John chapter 8, and I read verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was I am. Now that just, I just concluded that in my, what I'm reading just because it is this clear statement again about his being different than they are. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And it says he hid himself. Now we see sometimes, and I'm know it's in my notes later, but we see sometimes that some of the miracles that Christ does are attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit. But many of the miracles that he does are not, there's no attribution like that, no linkage to that. And in this case, it very specifically says he hid himself. He did it. So he had to be able to change his position, his place, his, his, where he was. He was no longer with them, okay? Um, he, they were ready to stone him. They were ready to look. Um, and he wasn't there any longer because he hid himself. And so, again, these are in the fact that he didn't give up these abilities. He didn't give them up during his earthly ministry. And then on to the fa- final passage along that way is John 16. Now, this is something that after, obviously, John 16 is very, very close to the end of his public ministry. And beginning with verse 29, his disciples said to him, See now, you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. So again... Um, not only have the disciples been first-hand observers of all the things that we have recorded in the Gospels as far as the things that Christ taught, the things that Christ did in the way of his signs, his miracles, his powers, his signs, but as I, was, as I mentioned last week in passing, they had all of these hours and days they spent with Christ that are not recorded in Scripture. So, you know, how much more did they see or how much more did they hear or how many other times when he was explaining something to them, they realized that he was explaining things to them that no other human could explain to them. Could, and the, the fact that he enabled them to understand, the fact that they realized that this was something so amazing and so unique. And so here, sort of in some of the final conversation that disciples are having with Christ, they say, you know, we just... We're, in, we're, you know, I'm going to put in my words, we're in awe of what you've told us. We're in awe of what you've done and what we've seen from you. And we know that you had to come from God. There's just no question in our mind that you came from God. So Christ, in his earthly ministry, uh, did, in fact, demonstrate that he was still omniscient, still om- omnipotent, that he still was, omnipre- and I believe omnipresent is still reflected in 
even in a passage in John chapter 1. So we didn't really even discuss the idea that he gave up his deity. We've talked about that so much in class from different vantage points that I didn't do much else with that. But to give up certain aspects of his attributes, to give up these, especially the omnis, the omnipotence and so forth, I, I think, again, Scripture very clearly teaches that that is not fact. That is not, in fact, true. The other position that I um, refer to as it is the most common uh, in uh, evangelical Bible-believing people, um, I do not want you to think that I think that anybody holds that position is wrong or heretical. I just think that there's a better understanding of the passage. So I, I, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not trying to put it, say anything else about them. I just think there's a different thing. Now let me suggest to you, that position again is that he gave up the independent use of his attributes. This would take a lot longer than we have right now, um, but I think it is a misunderstanding of the Trinitarian doctrine. I don't think the three persons of the Godhead ever acted independently of each other. Okay? Now, Beverly and I are partners. We've been partners for a long time. Um, but we, even though we have very, a lot of our thoughts are in common, uh, some, of, some of the things we like to do are in common, though I'm not a quilter <laughs> or a piano player. Uh, but we still, we're still independent, okay? As tight as our bond is, as tight as our relationship is, we are still two independent people, and we think very differently on some things. And we certainly enjoy some things very differently. But in the Godhead, in the three persons of the Godhead, we believe the three persons, in one essence, they share the same nature, and I do not believe that you can demonstrate that they ever acted independently of each other. God the Father never got up in the morning and said, I'll see the other rest of you in a, in a decade. I'll see the rest of you on the other, on the other end of, of, a, of whatever, history or whatever. They just, it's just contrary to the concept of a, tri a Trinitarian doctrine, okay? They are co-equal, co-existent, okay? Now the third, Beverly, co-eternal. They're co-eternal, co-existent, okay? So that's just, and you can go like, okay, whatever. But, and again, I don't think it, somebody holding this position, I, I will tell you, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand if they really think through it from the vantage point that I think through it at. I don't understand how they can, reconcile that he gave up the independent use of his attributes when I don't believe he ever had independent use of his attributes. And if you think about it from a Trinitarian position, I don't think you can come up with that conclusion that they ever had independent use of his attributes. So how could he give up something he never had? So my position is based on the, on the text and based on trying to just look at the text. Okay? So... I need to get back to Philippians chapter 2, if you turn back there with me. There are some evangelical, other, I'm not the only person that believes this. I'm just telling you it's not the most common position. I was taught this by 
professors in my college days. I challenged it when I first was taught it. I struggled with it, uh, trying to, you know, make it fit what was more common um, or whatever. I would just say to you that being in a minority position biblically is not always wrong. Because I'm going to tell you very clearly, this church, Calvary Bible Church, right here where you're sitting, is in a minority position as far as churches are concerned. What we believe, the way we practice, the way we treat one another is a minority position. You will not find a majority of churches in this land that are like ours. Now, if you don't recognize how unique we are, you need to because we are very, very unique in our doctrinal position, in the way we do ministry, the way our pastors lead us and shepherd us. We are in a very, very unique position. Other, many other churches that have a very, would have an identical doctrinal position that we have are what I will refer to as very legalistic. And we are not legalist. We are conservative, okay? There is a distinction between being conservative and being, and being legalistic. And one of the reasons that <coughs> Beverly and I are here is because this church is not legalistic, okay? And we are Bible-believing, very... We, we, we can sound proudly that, you know, the middle part of our name is Bible, so being in a minority does not mean it's wrong. I'm not trying to defend my position. I'm just trying to bring to your attention that sometimes a position, you'll say, well, I don't know if very many people believe that. Well, not very many people believe what we believe, if you believe what we believe. So I'll go on. So Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read the passage for you. I want you to think about what it's talking about, Okay. First of all, let me just back up for just a second. What is in this passage is true. What is in this passage is completely true. So I'm, what I'm, next thing I'm going to say is not to suggest in any way it's not true or completely true. But Paul is using the passages we're going to look at for the next few minutes. Paul is using this passage to illustrate a point he's making to the Philippian church. The Philippian church is striving, is working together, trying to gain unity. They have division within the church. They have difficulties within the church. Those difficulties have been created by some of the circumstances that they're living in because Paul is calling on them time and time again to rejoice despite the circumstances they're living in. And now he's saying to them, I want you to live like Christ would live if he was in your midst. And then he uses this illustration, he uses this example, okay? Picking up with, I'll pick up with the very beginning of the passage. <clears throat> Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Not real hard. Doesn't need a lot of 
discussion to explain or unfold what that passage is talking about, okay, along the way. And let me just suggest to you, and I don't know that there's any English translation that does this, and I, but, but I know others will, would confirm this if you ask them. In this particular verse, verse 1, it would be appropriate every time you see the word if in that verse, if you, if you read the word since. Paul was talking about a reality, and that's what he says in verse 1. He says, let me read it again. Therefore, since there is con- comfort, consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy, fulfill my joy. He says, since you have all the resources necessary to live together, to love one another, to be kind to one another, to be forgiving of one another, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, those resources are already in place. It's not if, like, you've got to go looking for them. It's not if, hoping they'll show up. It's, yes, they're already there. It's a reality, okay? So he's calling on them to think about each other, his team each other. Let each of you, verse 4, look, not for, not, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, so he says, I want you to think just like Jesus thought. I want you to have the same mindset as Jesus had. I want you to filter things through just like Jesus would filter things through. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every day, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so this is the, the passage that we're looking at. And specifically it begins again in verse 5, where it tells us to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. This word form is the word that indicates that what they saw on the outside was also true of Christ on the inside. It is the word that we get, it's the word morphe, it's the word that we get the word metamorphosis from, and when something goes through metamorphosis, it metamorphosis, it changes in its appearance. It changes in its function. This, this word says that God is God. He li- existed in the form of God. So Christ is God, okay? Also here, very sort of lost in the English word, but who being, I have the word being in the form of God. The word being, I don't know what other word you might have. You might have a different word there. I have who being in the form of God. Who being, any different word? Excuse me? Existing? Yeah, Existing. Existing really is a good way to, to look at this word. Uh, it's an unusual Greek word, and it's a word that has implications of eternality. It basically is saying that Christ has always existed, who has always existed in the form of God. Okay? So it's a very specific word used here by this Holy Spirit through Paul to give us this concept of this, this person. As, Christ, as Paul talks about Christ, he's talking about someone that has always existed in the form 
of God. He's always been who God is. He's always looked like God, recognizable as God, acted like God. That's who Jesus Christ has always been. He's always been in the form of God. Now, what does that mean to you, that he's always been in the form of God? What did he look like before he became it flesh? Dark? Invisible? Hard to find? Hard to see? What would he look like if he walked in this room? Would you need the lights on? Probably not. Probably not. So the way he used to exist was far different than what we're looking at when we look at each other. It's an, it's an appearance, it's, it's an existence that is only like God could exist. And that's how Christ has always, always existed, through being in the form of God. And then I have the expression, thought it not robbery, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Somebody else tell me, I know you have different expressions there in your scripture. Emily? Did not think, call it, consider it to be called equal with God, something to be grasped, okay? So those two translations sort of capture the two concepts of this word, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It was okay to to claim that equality. So the first idea is that Christ at any point in time could say to any person or group of people, I am God, and nobody could prove that he wasn't. Nobody could prove that that was an illegal claim. Okay? Now, how long would it take if I said to you, I am Pastor Joe Fouts? How long would it take for you to, to refute that? Judy, how long? <laughs> Judy says not very long, okay? I mean, he's not near as good looking as I am. He's not near as tall as I am, you know? He's not near as excited as I get. I mean, if I claim to be some, and I know we live in a world of identity theft, Okay? But if I claim to be somebody else, it wouldn't take very long for somebody to come along and prove me my claim to be illegal or wrong. Christ could at any point in time say, I'm God, prove me wrong. And nobody could do it. So it wasn't robbery. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't stealing something from somebody else for him to say, I'm God. He wasn't stealing something from the God the Father or God the Holy Spirit to say he was God because he's always been God. Okay? And what, and what um, Emily's reading is he didn't have to act like a toddler. What, I, what am I referring to? Two children fighting over the same tool, toy, and what are they both saying? Mine! It's mine, mommy. Christ didn't have to t- hold on to that cl- claim like somebody could take it away from them because they couldn't. They couldn't. Because he had something that they could not comprehend and they could not lay hold of. Okay? So who being in the form of God, 
thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He looked at himself and said, I've always been God. I always will be God. No one can take it from me. I don't have to worry about that. And I can make the claim that I'm God in any place, any court in this world, and nobody can prove me wrong. Okay? So Paul makes a really, really powerful statement about who Christ is. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation. This is the word emptied. Again, as I said, I think the King James and the New King James have this particular, um, I think they best represent what the word kanao in the context means because he is saying to them, I want you to look at others' needs. I don't want you to look at yourself. I want, to look at, I want you to look at others. So that's what Christ did. He didn't look at himself when he looked at us as sinners and realized that we needed a sacrifice for sin. He came and served. Okay? So he, he did give up something. He gave up that right to walk in this room and everybody in this room immediately to know that they were looking at God. Now that's a pretty interesting thing. Think about giving up your identity. Think about giving up your right to be recognized for who you are. We're all pretty proud of who we are. In one way or the other. Okay? And he gave up the right to be seen as he was. How did he give that right up? By giving up his deity? No. By giving up some of his attributes? No. By taking upon himself what? The form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. First of all, he took in the form of a form of a servant. This word form is the same word that was used to say that he took upon him, that he was, that he's always existed in the form of God. Same word. Okay? He truly was a servant. What did he say? I came not to be ministered unto, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when he's He's referred to as a servant in Isaiah, and he acted like a servant in every aspect of his earthly ministry. He was serving others, giving up his, who he was to serve us. Now, we don't live during the time that he was here on earth, but just in the very same way, he serves us. And so he, he emptied himself. He gave up the right to look like God by becoming a servant. The last thing you would ever expect from God to do is to act like a servant, to be a servant. Unless you have, I mean, without a biblical vantage point, a biblical viewpoint. And again, in this whole appearance thing, you know, servants always dress differently than masters and lords. When you walked into somebody's house, you didn't have to decide who was the servant and who was the lord of the house. But Christ gave up the right to look like the Lord of the house and look like the servant because he served. Because he served. And then it goes on to say that form of a servant, a bond slave, servant, slave, coming in the likeness of men. Now, um, turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Hold your hand back here. We're coming back to Philippians.
Romans chapter 8, verse 3 says this, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. Notice there again in the word, in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the word, in the Philippians, it says again in the likeness of, excuse me, let me make sure I'm reading, likeness of men. These two words are the same, same word in both cases. Yes, obviously the same word in English, but they represent the same word, likeness. The reason it says in likeness of sinful flesh in Romans chapter 8 is because he did not have a sin nature. Okay? So he wasn't in flesh like that passage goes on to talk about flesh. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he did not have a sin nature. Okay? And so I believe that's why Paul continues to use that same expression in Philippians and and coming in the likeness of men. So he took upon himself the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And this here being found is the idea of um, not so much found as in reference to something that was lost, so it wasn't that something was lost and it was found, but, but being found in the sense that people observed him, they made note of what they were observing, and then they drew a conclusion. And as they drew a conclusion, as they summed up everything that they observed about him and everything that they saw him, he was man. Okay? Now, we looked as a class, for those of you that are new to our class just for today, we looked as a class a couple weeks ago and, and looked at the fact that he was very clearly human. Okay? He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had... It, it tells us very plainly they became flesh and dwelt among us, okay, which is sufficient for me. I don't have to go anywhere else to believe the fact that he was. But um, so we looked at that. And so Paul says here, in my, in my understanding, is that this one who has always existed in the form of God could always be recognized as who God was, as who God is. Did something different, emptied himself made himself of no reputation by doing what? Looking, looking and acting like a servant. Okay? Looking and acting like a, a servant. Um, being in the likeness of men in the same sense as Romans 8, 3, when it's likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't have a sin nature. He was human in every other way, except he did not have a sin nature. And then when you, when you observed his life, when you looked at his earthly ministry, when you read the Gospels, and when you get to the end of reading the Gospels and you draw a conclusion, you draw a conclusion that this one that I'm thinking about and looking at and reading about is Christ, the man who has always existed as Christ God. And then it goes on to say, the passage goes on to say, which I've already read, went to the point of death, which that's the reason he took upon himself flesh, was to be an adequate substitute for us, to die for us, and, and to die, take our place on the cross for our sins. And that's why he did that, okay? And so, and so we're down here. So he dies, and then what does God do? And, and this is part of the illustration now that Paul is giving to these 
readers, what does God do after the humiliation? After the, the, as far as they were concerned, the most humiliating thing that could happen to anyone in their society was to be crucified. That was, that was the, that was the ultimate humiliation. Now we get laughed at about some silly thing or some little thing and feel like we're going to die because we're embarrassed. But Christ suffered the ultimate indignation. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then what did God do for him? Highly exalted him. Gave him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. All the way back, full circle, to who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I don't know about you, but that gives me goosebumps. To think about someone that's completely, absolutely beyond my comprehension, being willing to give himself up and be treated the way he was treated. If he had switched the switch at any point in time when those Pharisees were rebuking him and making fun of him, if he had looked like God for one-tenth of a second, they'd have shut their mouths and gone away. But he took every bit of their abuse, every bit of it. There's a story that I heard on the radio it was actually in James Dobson's program many years ago. Talked about a, a young lady, and she must have been a pretty good actress. But she was a, the way the description goes, she was a very, very beautiful young lady. She walked down the streets of Washington, D.C. a couple of days in a row and took note of all the people, that, all the men that looked at her all the things that people held the door for her and did all these things. And then she dressed up like an old bag lady and pushed her cart up the same sidewalk and tried to enter the same buildings. To have people shun her, people tell her to go away, people not have anything to do with her. That same young lady went to New York City and went to some of the nicer shops in New York City. And people couldn't wait to serve her, to ask her what she was looking for, to help her find whatever she wanted to find. And then she dressed up like an old elderly lady all bent over, went to that same shop, and reluctantly after waiting for a while, somebody finally came and offered to help her. And then when she got ready to check out, she acted like she couldn't find her money in her billfold. And the clerk so kindly offered to take her billfold and get the money out of it and stole some of her money, thinking that she was incapable of knowing what was happening. The small, small, small splinter of truth compared to what Jesus Christ did for you and me. Father, thank you for your dear son who loved us and gave himself for us. 
Thank you, though, that today he is highly exalted. And that ultimately there will be a time when every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, who took upon himself the form of a servant, Jesus Christ, who is found in the likeness of men, Jesus Christ, who is found in the fashion of a man, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.